You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Turn in your copy of God's Word then to Leviticus 8. Leviticus 8, we're going to cover chapters 8 through 10 and 21 through 22 uh, this morning as we uh, come to this new section in the book of Leviticus. And as you're uh, finding that uh, chapter there, Leviticus is the third book in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 8. And as you're finding that, let me just ask uh, this. You don't have to stick up your hands if you want to. You can, or you can give a here, here, whatever. But how many of you grew up in a church culture that still refers to the clergy, those like paid, uh, you know, uh, clergy members in the church that referred to them as priests? Any of you grew up in a uh, in a section or in a church culture like that? Uh, I did not. I know some people did. The closest I've ever gotten to that was when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute in, in Chicago, and I was driving horse carriages. Many of my coworkers were uh, 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 you know, from Western Europe and kind of grew up in a, around like a Roman Catholic understanding. And uh, so when they found out that I was studying for ministry, they used to call me Father Blair. Because <laughs> I was by far like, I was the young guy, and most of these guys you know, were old enough to be my dad and, and things like that. And, uh, and yet they would just call me Father Blair, and they would ask me to do all these things that I was so unfamiliar with, like spraying holy water and like blessing their horses and things like that. It's like, I, I don't know what that's all about. I can pray for you um, and things, but uh, that's a, the closest that I got there. But it's this idea of the priests that we come to now in Leviticus. The study of the Old Testament priests here, this uh, second ring that we come to in this uh, study here where our attention is brought to uh, this uh, priestly system, the Levitical priests that God has uh, designed. And so uh, just to kind of help you know where we're going, look here at the Leviticus bullseye again. If you were uh, with us last week, you saw this. It's also there on the backside of your sermon notes to help you as we understand where we're going in Leviticus Last week, we were in that outer ring of the first and and last sections of Scripture that really laid out the problem for us. And now we come to this second ring here of teaching on the Old Testament priests and what this is all about here. We're leaning into the center for the main point, the central point of the whole book of Leviticus is found there in those middle chapters, 16 and 17, which we'll get to a few weeks from now, but so you can see where we're at. We're at this outer ring. Now, let me remind you also the main theme of Leviticus, the whole reason where it is in the flow of, uh, of uh, history in the word of God is this, that the, the, the God graciously is making a way for his people to be in his presence. That's what Leviticus is all about. They've gone, they were set free from uh, uh, Egypt and their slavery there. God gave them the instructions. They're now in the wilderness, and they have the tabernacle or the tent of meeting there, but they, uh, they have this massive problem. They can't get in. They're, they're not holy. And so in these chapters, then, as we, uh, as we come to today, really, uh, as we saw last week, the impossibility of, of our uh, being holy and getting near to God, the question that uh, hangs out there for us in these chapters today is who will stand in the gap for us? Who will mediate on our 
behalf. If God is holy and we are not, how do we get a holy guy in there? Into the holy of holies, into the tent of meeting. And God in his wise design creates this Levitical priesthood in order to enable them to get in there. And that would point to something even greater. And so if you remember back to Exodus 28 and 29, there God gives the instruction. He gives the, 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 the instructions for how they're to dress and how they are to be ordained and set apart. There while Moses is on the mountain, God is laying out the Ten Commandments, these laws, uh, and how to build the tabernacle and how the priest should uh, to dress and be ordained. It's Exodus 28 and 29. You can go back, listen to a message on that. But what is most important when it comes to the Levitical priesthood is how they would then make themselves clean or holy and then be able to come into his presence. Because write this down. Here's the central truth of our uh, chapters today as we think about the priests, as we think about why God would establish a priestly line, and it is this. Here's the central truth. Write it down in your notes here, is that only the holy get to be near holy God. Only the holy get to be near holy God. And so the question then is, well, how then do they become holy well, our text will teach us that as we go here. And think of it this way. The playbook is given. The preparations were made in Exodus. And now the chapters that we read today, this text, it is game day. It's time to go for it. They have prepared. They have practiced. And now it is time to draw near to holy God. So come to Leviticus 8. I want to read the first nine verses for us to set the context and to set the trajectory for where we're going in these verses. Look here with me, follow along in God's word. Leviticus 8, beginning in verse 1, says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, just like parenthetical there, that's a lot of folks, right? Big gathering. And Moses did, verse 4, and Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now this is God's word for God's people that sets the stage for us here. Now look here, church. What was the uh, phrase repeated three times in those nine verses? A phrase or something other? I told you look here, but actually look at your Bibles, and, and so you can see what is repeated there. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 9. The Lord commanded. The Lord commanded. And so as we come to this uh, text here, these priestly preparations, which we're going to look closely at here, and what stage was set here, if we're, uh, the priests were to be holy, or how they would be near to God, it begin, began with this. They were to follow the Lord's commands. Write that down. How would they be holy? How could they come near holy God? Well, they had to follow the Lord's commands okay now that's going to be repeated multiple times through chapter eight here as you read through it on your own as you'll see it after it all it's like the lord commands and we're doing as the lord commands 
But in our verses that we just read, uh, it's described for us that priestly outfit of what they had to wear. You might remember this from our uh, teaching in Exodus, but look here what this uh, looks like, this rendering of the priestly garment. Could you imagine like if I uh, wore this stuff, came in and, and uh, had all this, uh, this outfit on here? Now, note what's significant about all this is the same material that the uh, priest, the high priest's garments here were made of the same material that the tent of meeting was made of. You know, they were set apart. This wasn't just uh, everyday clothing, but this was only to be worn in official capacity as they were representing the people to God. And you see the gold plate across the top of the turban there, the onyx stones, the 12 stones that had the 12 tribes of Israel on it and all the different pieces there, the uh, the two stones, the Uman and Thurman that were there that, uh, you know, really there's not a whole lot of explanation in the scriptures about it, uh, uh, but uh, somehow they would use these to try to understand uh, the will of God if uh, one was a no and the other was a yes, and they would use these things here to understand what God was leading them to do. But what do we make of all the garments? What are we to make of this? Uh, we saw that it all described in Exodus, uh, you know, when we were in that passage. Now here, it's just, they're just doing now as the Lord has commanded. What do we make of all this? Is the Lord in the fashion business? No, note this. The significance of it all is that the priests were covered. They were clothed by a righteousness not their own. They were made holy. They were made pure or clean by this from these garments that were not their own. The wealth of the jewels that were on it, the righteousness from head to toe was not their own. And the only way that they could come into the presence of God, into the dwelling place, into that most holy place and not die was to wear this outfit. Now, it wasn't just like some mere costume, right? Any more than like, you know, a little girl dressing up like Elsa makes her a princess where she could just approach like, you know, the British royal uh, palace. And But the priests, they were to wear these to cover themselves in a righteousness of their own at the Lord's command and were then to be consecrated or ordained or set apart for service to the Lord. And so if we were to just go through, let's just take a flyover of the rest of, of uh, chapter 8 here. They get dressed, and then in verse 10, then this oil is poured not only on them, but on the altar and the utensils to uh, set them apart. It's a symbol of their purity. In verse 14, then, the bull for the sin offering is killed and burned in its entirety as a way to say sorry to the Lord for their sins, a repentance as the Lord had commanded. In verse 18, then the ram for the burnt offering is also killed and burned in its entirety, really to say, now thank you, God, for receiving us. And verse 22, another ram, the ram of ordination, was offered. The blood of this one is then taken and on the high priest, put on his right ear and his right thumb and his right toe as a way to show that uh, before him the things that he would, his dedication to the hearing of God's word and to doing the commands of the Lord and to walking carefully in the ways of the Lord. Then all these, they waved the pieces, they burned them before the Lord and they ate there. The priests would eat their portion, accepting responsibility for uh, representing the people to God. But it all culminates, all these commands, all of these uh, things that they were to do, not just on one day, but on seven days, culminates in verse 35 and 36. Look at it here, Leviticus 8, verse 35 and 36. 
at the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded Moses. Now see, what are they to do here? To do all that the Lord commanded. I told you, it's like repeated after every one of those sections. I told you, these were the commands of the Lord. And so as it's repeated over and over, what do you think the Spirit intends for us to understand from this chapter? The Lord takes seriously his commands, does he not? He takes seriously us, us following in his commands. And here's the thing, though we are not Aaron nor a Levitical priests, the Lord's commands in Scripture to us are not just mere suggestions. They're not just like one option among many or, or tips for a happy life. His commands from our, uh, there are commands from our loving God who has graciously invited us into his presence, graciously invited us into relationship with him, into this family of, of his. His commands to us that he gives us are, are really God saying, uh, come this way. If you're going to come near me, you come this way, not that way. No, that way is going to lead to, to your pain. No, this way is going to lead to separation. No, this way you're going to hurt yourself. Not that way, this way. Come to me this way, not that way. I know that looks enticing. Not that way, this way. So in each instance, it is God's love and his grace and his mercy in his commands leading us to himself. Not trying to kill our fun or anything else. This is why, you know, John comes back to tell us in 1 John 5, 3, Later, years after Leviticus, thousands of years after Leviticus, he says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, write that down, look it up, commit it to memory. See, his commands are not God just telling us what we should or shouldn't do because he wants to just have this like dictatorial control over our life but it is an expression of his love. Knowing the corruption of sin, he gives us these commands that we can come near to. And so he has lots of them. We should expect no, no different, especially as the priests are, are coming. They are to follow God's commands. If they're going to be near God, they must follow his commands. But the instructions don't end there, actually. And so I want you to flip over now to chapter 21 and 22 for a moment. Because here there's the priestly preparations as they're coming and offering these offerings. But there are on, on the backside now additional instructions encasing the center point of the, of the text here uh, of how a priest would qualify himself to be near God. If they were to be holy, if they were to be near God, here's the second part. They must be set apart to the Lord's service. But first, they had to follow all of the Lord's commands, but two, they also had to be set apart or consecrated or sanctified. And if we were making up words here, when we see this uh, word sanctified in the text, or even as we think about it, we could make up a word to be holified, right? Been around here a while, I like to make up words. It's not original to me, but, you know, the sanct sometimes we get all these, like, Biblical words, these Christianese words, and we kind of like lose track. But really, the sanctify is just really a derivative of the same word that we get holy. And so it's how are we like made holy. That's what's happening in all of this. And so just like what, what qualifies a guy to go in? Well, make 
follow the Lord's commands, make sure you're clean, make sure you're holy. And for the priest, there was an increased expectation of holiness or cleanliness uh, for them to draw near. There's a higher bar. There's a higher bar so that when they would come in, there's this repeated phrase in, in chapter 21 and 22, so that they do not profane the Lord's name. Now, this isn't like, you know, how we use like to, to use, take the Lord's name in vain and, you know, to make it a, a pejorative or something as we speak, but how we, to, to, to profane his holiness. But it is the Lord who is sanctifying and making them holy. And what we're bringing in is our unholiness, our uncleanness. And so God is saying, hey, you have to do these things to qualify you to come into his presence. And so there's a multitude of things in these verses. Just in chapter 21, we're not going to read through it all, just kind of take a little bit, but they had to be uh, exemplary. There was a higher standard for the priests, priests in 21, 1 through 6, in their appearance. And, and for their family, as they would come, they'd have to stay away from the, the dead to not make themselves unclean. But verse 4, not to be unclean amongst his people and so profane themselves. They shall not make bald patches on their heads. Sorry, bald guys, can't shave your head, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, right? They shall be holy. They were to be exemplary in their appearance, but also, as you go on in verses 7 to 15, exemplary in their marriage and who they could marry. Look at verse 7. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And it goes on to list out some other uh, ex exceptions and things that they were to do and not do. Why? Verse 15, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I, the Lord, uh, who sanctifies, I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Exemplary in appearance, exemplary in marriage, also exemplary in their physical ability. Verses 16 to 24 talk about how uh, a, a man, as they approach the Lord, speak there in verse 17, speak there and saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who have a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. In their physical ability to list some things out here of, of what would qualify or disqualify a priest from coming into the presence of the Lord, but not just in their physical ability. Also, as we move into chapter 22, verses 1 to 9, their physical health. Okay, Speak Aaron and his sons. This is verse 2, chapter 22. So that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord your God. Say to them, if any one of your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things, that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord the things that they are bringing into the house while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. And he goes on to list all these different things that would make them unclean, but they are to be exemplary in this. And the last is very fascinating, verse 10 through 16, they're to be exemplary in how they manage their household. See, these things aren't just applicable to the priests, but also to the people that live with them, whether they're guests in their house, whether foreign guests or, or, or slaves that are working for them or their, their, their uh, sons or daughters. They are also held to a higher standard. Verse 15, they shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And so church, what do we make of all this? 
what, what, what's up with this? It's like the Lord, does he like not value the disabled, the imperfect? Well, it's not at all. It's not at all. And, and that's really where 17 through uh, 30, the rest of chapter 22, really are the key to understanding why of God's commands in all of these things. Come to verse 17 here as uh, as reading. I want to just read a section here. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, it is to be accepted for, uh, for you. It shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or itch or scabs you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. That's kind of disgusting, isn't it? What do we make of all this? You see, the human tendency is to maybe blame God before we are self-confrontational. Well, God, you don't value these things? But see, what God is doing in these verses is he knows our tendency. He's giving these laws to these people. He knows our tendency to give to the Lord our least or our last or our worst. You know, they, they live in this agrarian society. They're raising these cattle and raising these, uh, these, uh, the, these crops. And, you know, the, the tendency could be, well, that one's weak. That one's not going to survive. If I have to make an offering, why don't I do that one? Or these things have molded, so I'll bring this to the Lord. And that one, it's no longer able to reproduce, and I need it. So you know what? I'm going to give to the Lord out of the last or the least or the worst of my resources. See? God is calling us not to give to him his leftovers or even just a pinch of the leftovers. But because God is holy, he deserves our first and our best. He deserves what is what is most value to us, and he won't accept that with uh, with blemish. In the same way that we as worshipers of God now, as we come to him, we give to him our, the best of our time, the best of our talents, the best of our treasures, and not the leftovers. It's why he gave to us the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, even now as we're here with the first and the best of our time as we begin the week saying, God, you are worth our talents, not the leftovers of it, as we establish our giving to the Lord first and not the last or the leftovers of it. God wants our best in order to protect. It's it's actually a, 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 a show of God's protecting love for the weak disabled things and this also i skipped over it but i want to come back to it this also is what is going on this principle at play of god's love in chapter 21 come back to chapter 21 verse 17 when it comes to the priests here i'll just read this section 21 verse 17 speak to aaron saying none of your offspring throughout their generations who have a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his god For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offering. 
since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Now what do we make of this? Does God not care about them? Do I not care about somebody who's blind or has a disability or same principle is that true because the tendency would be like, well, let's send the guy in who can't fight. Let's send the guy in who can't have children. Let's send the guy in to there because as we'll see in just a minute, it is a risky business to come near to the things, to, to the presence of God. It is near. And so it's like, well, we don't, let's just, uh, let's send them in. And no, it is God protecting his great value for these men as they would be uh, tempted to let's send these in there. God is so good in all this, isn't he? Be holy, follow his commands, consecrate yourself to not profane. It's now go time. Because that's what it's all about, right? These things are happening. He's given the instructions. This is who can come in. This is how you make yourself holy. These are the commands that you have to do. And now, as we come to chapter 9, I want us to go back there. Here's where he's saying it's, it's now like game time for God's people. Do all these things. Be, uh, be made holy in this way, and now you can come near to holy God. And so go back over, because it's actually getting very exciting in here. Here's all the preparations. Here's all the things happening. But go back to Leviticus 9. I can mark it in my Bible here, because now it's game day. It, it's game day as the tabernacle's built. They're now gearing up for it. And so I want us to read, actually, chapter 9 uh, in its entirety. Follow along. I'm going to read it here for us, and you can see how awesome this is. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for the sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. It was pretty exciting, right? And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Where God is, his glory is. Where his glory is, change happens, transformation happens. Verse 7, then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat, the kidneys, and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed in the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offerings to him piece by piece in the head, and he burned them on the altar, and he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. 
And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat piece of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidney and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breast, and he turned the fat pieces on the altar, but the breast and the rites as commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And look at this, verse 23. Don't miss this, church. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Church, it worked. This is so amazing. Like we're at the very first worship service in the tent of meeting. They do as the Lord commanded. And remember where Leviticus began. Moses is where? Outside the tent. God is speaking from inside. And now it worked. And there's pure elation. This is unashamed worship where the only thing the people can do, they're gathered like on pins and needles. Is this thing going to happen? It's like the space shuttle launch. And in chapter 9, you're reading through, and it's like, all right, and they do this, check, and do this, check, check, check. All right, it's time to go. And they go in, and it works. Pure worship. So much so, uh, God shows up, the fire, his glory comes out of nowhere to consume the, the sacrifice. And all they can do in response to the Lord, pure worship, shouting and falling to the Lord, in a pure adoration of the Lord. This is amazing. It, it is so incredible here. Moses and Aaron walking by faith. Can you imagine them like coming and it's like, did we do everything right? Aaron, Aaron, did I miss anything? Moses, did I miss anything? We're coming in. The anticipation is so high. It works. It's so incredible. It's so incredible. See, here's the thing that the text is teaching us here in chapter 9. You want to be holy, come into his presence, follow his commands, set apart to his service, and then come into his presence with humble obedience. They just followed the Lord's way. Like They got to come in to his presence with humble obedience. Let me just zoom out here for you to see things, because uh, uh, the Pentateuch here, as it's written, at the beginning of Leviticus, as we've already mentioned, they're outside the, the tent, and then you get to Numbers, chapter 1, verse 1, and now Moses is there also inside. So they're worshiping God. It's all, you know, it's like a time where, you ever, guys, you ever been building something, doing like a Christmas gift, and you're like putting it all together, you're following all the instructions to a T and all that, and it's like, all right, here's the moment of truth, I'm going to plug it in. And it works. Yes. There's the other times where you're getting like, what did I miss? Right? But see, here's the thing. In chapter 9 is the first part of the very first worship service that they're having in the tent of meeting. And the second half of the worship service here is exciting, but for very different reasons. 
very different reasons. Imagine the anticipation as they're going, but the lesson here as it moves to chapter 10 is very sobering. As it continues on, go just like remove the chapter break here and just continue reading. They shouted, they fell on their faces. This is awesome. And now Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, are coming along for the second part in the worship service. And look at these first few verses. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, that's the fire bowl that they would have to offer uh, these uh, incense offerings to the Lord, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. They died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And sanctified, again, is to declare, to acknowledge as holy. To be glorified is to declare, to acknowledge as worthy. And see, here's the flip side of this. Follow the Lord's commands, be set apart to his service, and come into his presence with humble obedience. Or you can, here's the fourth point here, or you can come into his presence with sin and be consumed. God's commands are not something to trifle with. They were warned of that at the end of chapter 8, so that you do not die. And in, in, in a very stark contrast to the pure worship of what happens when they come in, here is the, the, the massive letdown of disobedience. Just come to his presence with sin, traips on in. And here it's just like, it's like chapter 9 is here's the right way to come into God's presence, the right way to be holy. And chapter 10 is here's the wrong way. Do your own thing. But God's glory like a fire. Drawing in those who would come near to him in humble obedience to find warmth, to find the affection of God. To draw near the fire in arrogance and recklessness burned up. Maybe you're wondering, you come to a, a chapter like this and you're unfamiliar with, with who, uh, like who these guys, what's going on here? Like who, who are these jokers? Don't they know? We read chapter 8. We know what's happening. Didn't they? Didn't? Well, they're not just any old jokers. I want to read to you a lengthy kind of explanation of this. It's lengthy, but it's helpful of who these guys are and what's happening in these verses here. Some guy named John MacArthur in his book uh, called Strange Fire is about something that really is leading to something totally different. But his explanation of what's happening here is very helpful. Listen to this. His Nadab and Abihu were not shamans or snake oil salesmen who infiltrated the camp of Israelites in order to spread the Canaanites' superstitions among the people. They were by all appearances righteous, respectable men and godly spiritual leaders. They were priests of the one true God. And they were no middling Levites. Nadab was heir apparent to the office of the high priest, and Abihu was next in line after him. They were the eldest sons of Aaron. Moses was their uncle. Their names head the list of the nobles of the children of Israel in Exodus 24. Aside from their father Aaron, they are the only ones singled out by name. The first time scripture mentions Israel's 70 elders in Numbers 11, those group of leaders who shared spiritual oversight in the Hebrew nation. Scripture does not introduce them to us as sinister figures or notoriously wicked men. Quite the opposite. 
These two brothers, together with their other 70 elders, were privileged at Sinai to ascend the mountain partway and watch from a distance as God conversed with Moses in Exodus 24. The people of Israel had been instructed to stand at the foot of the mountain and not go up the mountain or touch its base. While God was up there talking to Moses, if so much as a stray beast wandered onto the skirt of Sinai, that animal was to be stoned or shot. From the base of the mountain, all the rank-and-file Israelites could see was smoke and lightning, but Nadab and Abihu were expressly named by the Lord himself, who invited them to come up and bring the 70 elders. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. Exodus 24, 11. In other words, Nadab and Abihu had been closer to God than almost anyone. No other Israelite except Moses himself had ever been given a higher privilege. These men certainly seemed to be godly trustworthy spiritual leaders and faithful servants of God, young men of renown. No doubt virtually everyone in Israel esteemed them highly. And no doubt everyone in Israel was staggered when God suddenly struck Nadab and Abihu dead with a blast of holy fire. This occurred apparently on the first day of their service in the tabernacle. Aaron and his sons were anointed in a seven-day-long ceremony when the building of the tabernacle was complete. And on the eighth day, as we just read in Leviticus 9, Aaron offered the first sin offering ever made in the tabernacle, and the ceremony was punctuated with a miracle. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Most likely, Nadab and Abihu had taken fire from some source other than the brazen altar and used it to light their censers of incense. Remember that God himself set the altar ablaze with fire from heaven, and apparently Nadab and Abihu had filled their censers with fire of their own making or coals from some fire in the camp of Israel. The actual source from which they obtained the fire is not recorded, nor is it important. The point is that they used something other than the fire God himself had ignited. Their offenseness in trifling to someone accustomed to the type of casual self-indulgent worship our generation is known for. They may have also been drinking. Perhaps they imbibed enough that their judgment was poor. For Leviticus 10.9, as we'll see in just a moment, seems to suggest this was the case. Still, what Scripture expressly condemns is the unauthorized fire they offered. The crux of their sin was approaching God in a careless, self-willed, inappropriate manner without the reverence he deserved. They did not treat him as holy or exalt his name before the people. The Lord's response was swift and deadly. The unauthorized fire of Nadab and Abihu ignited the unquenchable flames of divine judgment against them, and they were incinerated on the spot. End quote. Okay, so this is like serious and sobering stuff, isn't it? We think of like only the holy get to be near holy God. The text will go on after they're, they're, uh, they're, they're consumed here. Like, just get this for a second as we take a fly over here. In, in the, the preceding, uh, the verses that come next here, there's additional commands to the cousins so they don't get consumed. Come back to the text here in verse 4. It says, Moses calls Mishael and Elizaphon and the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron. And he says to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. They're there, pure elation, God's fire comes. Now the second part, Nadab, Abihu come, and now they're uh, consumed. And now Moses looks at the cousins, the next in line, and says, all right, go get those guys and get them out of there. They're like, I don't know about that. All right. 
He'll go on to give more instructions. Make sure you do this. Don't do that. That's what the verses come. Don't drink. Uh, don't do any of these things. That would be risk. I can't even imagine. Do you think they followed the commands that Moses gives in the coming verses to a T? You better believe it. We're <laughs> to see something like that, right? The final verses here is like the, the, the final part of the worship service, beginning in verse 8, and, and, and uh, they give this grain offering. And in verse 16, Moses is all confused. He's like, well, what has happened to the priestly portion of the goat for the sin offering? Like, why was this entirely consumed, and why didn't you guys eat this? Aaron's reply in verse 19 says to Moses, Behold, today they've offered their sin offering, their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approves. There's an interesting play here. Aaron himself is like, I don't know if I want to eat it. Am I unholy because, I, uh, because I've been near these dead people and there's uh, instructions on that? Am I, uh, he, he wasn't willing to take the risk of being incinerated himself. Here's the thing to consider as we come into all this. Are you sure you want to be in God's presence, priest? Tell you what, if I was of the tribe of Levi and I was next in line here, I'd consider pulling a Prince Harry and revoking my royal status. I'm serious. I, I'm, I'm going back to civilian life. I want this responsibility. Yet it's a great privilege. You know why we find in the Bible the command to tremble before God? Psalm 96 9, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. There's the writer of Hebrews. Would say in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what is it? Nadab and Bihu? They are a sobering reminder that we are not holy. And that only the holy get to be near holy God. And it leads us as we think about the priests and all that they had to do just to get in there and the, the great reward and the elation, the worship of getting to be near God, but the severe consequences of those who would come near to him and holy. And it leads us to just like ask the question, who could possibly do all that is necessary to make themselves holy? Who could follow all of God's commands every time? But rather, we need a mediator to stand in the gap, don't we? And our confidence in priests and in a priestly system like this is shaky at best. Yet, redemption, we have something more sure than the Levitical priesthood. Something more sure than all of this, while it is sobering to us. And yes, the commands to us are to follow the Lord. We must do, we must set ourselves apart and live differently than the way that the world lives so that we can worship God in the splendor of his holiness. Yet in all of our best effort, could we do it? No, there was only one who could do it. Come over to Hebrews chapter 7. We come to a close here. Hebrews chapter 7, it's towards the end of your Bible. I hope uh, for you as we get to know Leviticus better that Hebrews will also be much more uh, clear to you as well. Hebrews 7, chapter 7, not 7, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 26. Look at this. 
based on all that we've just seen about the priest, the high priest, this whole system in Leviticus, look at how it speaks of Christ. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. So that was the whole goal of all those preparations, of all of God's commands. You get a priest that was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, going on and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Church, Christ is both the priest and the sacrifice. He was both the priest, the one offering, the one setting himself apart, but not just to offer something else, but to offer himself. See, he was both the sacrifice. Go over to now chapter 10 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Quotation, by the way, of Psalm 40, verses 6 and 8. When he said, Above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These he offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every high priest, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of finished what do you do when the job is done sit down christ came once for all both the priest and the sacrifice for our sins so that we could draw near to god so that we could have this confidence to come near to him, unlike the uncertainty of putting our hope in the priestly system, in the sacrificial system that had to be offered in an ongoing way. Now Christ, in a completed way, has sat down so that we can come near with confidence. Go to verse 19, Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, are you in Christ today, church? Has Christ... His sacrifice on the cross atoned for your sins. Come before the Lord to tell him you're sorry, repenting of your sins, and say thank you for Christ. And this confidence is true. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, to draw near to God, that's what he's talking about, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful 
let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May we come into his presence today, not in our own holiness, not in our own good works, not by good music, but we come into God's presence by Christ because of Christ. Keep reading. You see the same warning, a Nadab and Abihu type warning. But here's the thing, y'all. Jesus isn't some deadbeat high priest. He's there in the middle permanently because he is holy. We have a high priest who dwells permanently in the holy of holies, and he invites us in. Invites us in to come and be holy, to follow him. Remember what Moses said to Aaron after Nadab and Abihu were incinerated. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. As we draw near to God, we sanctify him. We declare him holy. We glorify him and declare him as worthy. We needed a mediator, somebody to stand in the gap. That mediator was Jesus. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ. So as we draw near to him, we worship him as holy, worthy, for he alone is. You pray with me now, and we're going to sing this song together. God in heaven, here we are before your word. Here we are drawing near to you thankful that we can come near to you with confidence. Confidence that we're not being incinerated. That we do so, God, with great reverence. With holiness. A holiness that is not our own. But a holiness that belongs to Jesus. So we need your help, Lord. Help us to see in the midst of all these, all these commands, all these instructions, these warnings, God. Help us to see Christ, seated there, the great high priest, the great sacrifice, the Lamb of God for our sins. So God, we know our problem, we know our sin, and we confess it to you. We also tell you the way forward. We tell you that you are holy, you are worthy of it all. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Thank you.